Good morning, church. My name is Joel Dunn, and I'm a committed member here at Redeemer San Angelo, and it's my privilege to read Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will, I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in, a, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. All right, you guys can take a seat. Good morning. Welcome, welcome to Redeemer. My name is Ryan, for those of you I haven't met. Uh, I'm one at a church plant is when one of us gets sick, the other one's still there. So uh, the the hard part of that is when we got COVID, uh, I ended up exposing Brian the week before, I, I think it was either one of us, I think Brian was supposed to preach, and we didn't have a guest preacher. Uh, and so that's like, that's the other hand of, of having two pastors is we do all our meetings together. And so we expose each other to respiratory viruses, but um, we're okay. I'm, I'm doing good. Um, Brian had preached the, the last couple of weeks of our, our Lent series, uh, Repent and Believe. We're looking through the, the Gospel of Mark. And this theme of repent and believe we've presented to you as an invitation. I think we're really familiar hearing these words, especially the word repent, as a rebuke as a heavy-handed, you need to repent. And that's not the way that Mark, um, the Holy Spirit through Mark, presents this offer of repentance. He presents it as an invitation. He says, repent and believe the kingdom's here. This is good news. And so I want to I help us to see this morning um, how this invitation of repent and believe is an invitation to freedom. Now, one of my favorite preachers, Charlie Dates, he's a, 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 he was in Chicago, I think he's in, in Philadelphia now. He likes to title his sermons and that's kind of just all he goes on, that's his theme. So if I were Charlie Dates, I would title this sermon, The Freedom of Repentance. So if you take notes and you wanna write that down, The Freedom of Repentance kind of antithetical to how we usually consider repentance. It's like this obligatory Christian thing. I have to do it because I'm a terrible person, self-deprecating. That's not the way that the Holy Spirit offers us repentance. And so um, we're gonna look at the freedom of repentance. Now, I want to uh, go back and quickly define yet again what we mean when we talk about repentance. When we say repent and believe, these are two things that must happen at the same time, or they, they just won't stick. So repent means to turn from your sin, and to believe means to trust in Jesus. So turn from your sin, turn towards Christ, right? It's that simple. You might be thinking like, no, that's too complicated. This more complicated than that. That's too simple. No, it really is that simple. What makes it complicated is we think that we're in charge of doing that. We think that like, we can muster up enough to, to keep that rotation going. 
We need this, the Holy Spirit to help us do that. We have the responsibility to respond, to be obedient to the Spirit. But the, that movement from repent to believe is from turning from sin, turning towards Christ. It's admitting you're wrong and that Jesus is right. It's taking yourself out of the center of your life and putting Jesus at the center. Now, it's not just like, okay, I'm a Christian. I've got to wear uh, all the Christian shirts. I've got to go to church every single Sunday and Wednesday. I've got to listen to Christian music. I've got to do all these Christian things. This, is, this controls where my money goes. All those are good things. All those are things that that's fine if that's how you live. That's not what makes you Christian. What makes you Christian is repenting, turning from your sin, and believing and trusting in Jesus. And we, we say it's not religion, it's relationship. And that, that can sometimes muddy the waters a little bit because, you know, Christianity is a religion. And so we need to be clear that we're not just talking about, um, I'm going to do all the things that I don't want to do now. Being a Christian is not fun. That's not repent and believe. It's an invitation to true freedom. Take yourself out of the center of the, the purpose and control of your life and put God there. Um, I'll start. I, I'm a trained science teacher, turned trained pastor, preacher. Uh, but I, I used to teach astronomy, and I learned of this guy. Anybody ever heard the name Nicholas Copernicus? You may have heard the Copernican Revolution. No? Okay. In the 1500s, this Polish... Um, mathematician, astronomer, Christian. He was struggling with some of these math equations that had to do with how the planets go around in the sky and like they seem to move backwards sometimes and he just didn't, it didn't make sense. We had to come up with all these contingencies for our math and come up with these weird theories about why the planets move backwards and then go forwards again and the, the math just didn't make sense. The models didn't make sense. If you look at the, the actual like physical planetary models with the earth in the center, um, it's weird. What, what in the 1500s, the common theory was that the earth was at the center of the universe. Humanity in the middle of everything. All the other planets, the sun, the moon, the whole universe orbited around the earth. We're at the center of our own existence. And Copernicus was unsettled by this because the math just didn't make sense. He was a mathematician. He knew it, it was supposed to be smooth and simple. And so he said, what if we take the sun and put it at the center and try to see how our math works with everything revolving around the sun? And it worked. The math all made sense. All the contingencies and all the, the backup plans we had to have, they just, they weren't necessary anymore. The math was simple. And we understood why the planets started to move backwards in the sky. Too long to get into that this morning. This is a sermon, not a science lesson. I'm sorry. Y'all probably remember me talking about mitosis a couple of weeks ago. Um, I, I may need to just teach my kids a little science lesson and scratch that itch, get that out of there. But when Copernicus brought this to the scientific community, um, they rejected it. They laughed him out of a career. The church rejected it because it was as if he was saying, um, humanity is not the center of the universe. It wasn't until long after his death that, that this started to be widely accepted in the scientific community and that the church started to realize, oh, that's not what he's saying. 
And this isn't just an ideology that's stuck in the Middle Ages. This isn't a 1500s Europe problem. We think the same way today, that we should be the center of our universe. Why do we want a certain number of social media followers and likes and reposts and so much influence on the internet? Why uh, do we drive ourselves anxious, worried about what our future is going to look like, or worried about what our kids' futures are going to look like? This really, this idea of, of, of me being in control and thinking that I can do what it takes to perform and keep everything orbiting myself, this really hit me hard a couple weeks ago. Um, I was anxious, just, do y'all remember Wednesday, um, a couple weeks ago, we had just had the chairs in the circles. Just getting to that point was stressing me out. I didn't want to make the wrong decision and have somebody upset, oh, this is a bad idea. I, I couldn't handle the pressure of putting chairs in circles. And what it showed me was that in every other part of my life, I was clinging to control. That was just a symptom of the fact that I had myself in the middle thinking that I could control and perform well enough to keep everything orbiting. And I can't do that. We were not designed for our own kingdoms to be built upon our performance, our success. We're not designed that way. We are designed to be a part of a kingdom, not to build our own, but to be a part of a kingdom to where our lives are central to Jesus. And to, to be, go back to my high school days and use dad jokes, God designed creation, not with us at the center, but with the sun at the center. I'm not ashamed to make jokes like that on stage, guys. Thank you for your laughter. But really, God designed for um, our lives to, to worship him, to, for him to be the point. And so just a basic idea of sin is getting that backwards. Adam and Eve took the apple. They said, we distrust God. We're going to go chase this thing. I can make my own choices. I know what's good for me. I know how to find wisdom. I know how to find life. To repent and believe is to take yourself out of the center of your universe and put God in the center. Okay, that's, a, that's an oversimplification, but that's uh, the basis. Let's start, let's look back at verses 14 through 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Uh, in Two verses, we see a couple other words that we may need to define. What does, what does Jesus mean by gospel? Because I thought the gospel had to do with Jesus dying. He hasn't done that or talked about that yet. So how, the, how are they supposed to know what the gospel is, right? Because um, Jesus is talking to an audience that is not Christian. It's a Jewish audience. He hasn't died yet. He hasn't made that claim even at this point. So what does he mean when he talks about gospel? And what is the kingdom of God? Because they're under the authority and power of Rome, and we'll find out later in Mark that not only did the Pharisees and the religious elite expect a Messiah, a Savior, to come and kind of just dethrone Rome and start a, a military coup, his own disciples, Jesus' own disciples had that idea in their heads too. So where did they get that from? 
And what does Jesus mean? Because he doesn't mean that. So the disciples and the religious elite were, were concentrating their thoughts on this Davidic kingdom, um, that David was this great ruler and the Messiah would come and mimic David because there's some Old Testament prophecies about that. But what Jesus says is the kingdom is here. Not it's coming, not mark your calendars, not save the date. The kingdom is here, it's at hand, it's near. So what do we mean when we say the kingdom of God? What do we mean when Jesus says the gospel of God? So essentially he's saying the power, the rule, and the reign, the authority of God is here. Eugene Peterson says that God moved into the neighborhood. That God is with us, he's near us. In this idea of God, this powerful, um, all-knowing, all-present being moves into our neighborhood. He's here. He's with us. His power and authority and influence is among us. And it seems like, it, it seems here like Jesus is, is making a really simple statement, and we're kind of like, well, he's jumping to a lot of conclusions that we're not clued in on yet. Um, but I want you to understand one thing. His call to repent and believe the gospel is urgent. His call to repent and believe the gospel is an urgent call that demands an immediate response. This is not, this invitation to repentance is not like your second cousin's wedding invitation that they sent to you and it's still on your fridge three weeks later. You haven't sent in the RSVP yet because you're not sure if you're going. You know they really just want an air fryer from you. So if we have this idea of invitation in mind, we're not going to understand what's happening. This, this invitation demands an urgent and immediate, immediate response. It is, it's not like a wedding invitation. It is like if someone tells you, I love you for the first time. We all know what even the slightest hesitation means. You respond immediately, regardless of what you say. If you say, I love you, it's well-received. If you say, I love you, I love you too, we know what that means. So hopefully this helps us understand why the, the disciples, the first two men, the first four men that Jesus called, immediately dropped everything because they knew what Jesus was saying was the kingdom of God, the power, the rule, the reign, the authority, the influence, the salvation of God is here. No more waiting. The time is fulfilled Let's go. And if they did not respond immediately, that this guy could just keep walking on and go pick somebody else. So let's read verse 15 uh, one more time because there's, there's another phrase I've already mentioned. And Jesus said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, the gospel, um, this is a, we get the word gospel uh, translated to us and we've kind of turned that into its own little word. What this means is good news, good tidings. We hear that around Christmas time. It's like, I have something awesome to tell you. Repent and believe in the good news. See, this goes back to this idea that Brian and I are, are trying to help us relearn this idea of repentance, that it's an invitation to freedom. It is good news because the kingdom of God came to the offenders of God 
Who are the ones that needed the kingdom of God to come back to them in the first place? That's us. The call to repent, the invitation to repent is necessary because we need to repent. Because we were the ones that chose sin over God. We chose to put ourselves in God's place. Yet it's to us that the kingdom comes. We, it, when we think about justice and retribution, vengeance, like getting back, standing up for what's, what our ideas, what's right and what's good, we think about payback. We think about, oh man, I'm, I'm glad the Patriots aren't going to win another Super Bowl. We want retribution. We want justice. We expect, even, even for those, those of us that, um, it may take it a little bit for us to think about this, but we do expect for God's retribution and justice to fall on us. And I love what Sean shared this morning because the gospel, the good news, is that it fell on Christ. It fell on Jesus. So now that's all, all that's left for us is God's gentleness and God's lowliness towards us. That repent is an invitation to turn to him. Not, you gotta fix yourself before I come back. We expect God's wrath, but we get his mercy. And we expect God's wrath because in retribution, in, in, in the form of justice, we like to give out wrath. And so we expect, we look at God through the lenses of our broken lives and our broken identities. And so we expect God's wrath, but we get his mercy. We expect God's punishment, but we get his blessing in Jesus. We expect God's retribution, but we get Repentance. Repentance is an invitation to freedom. And what this has to say about the gospel is that we don't have to earn salvation. The gospel that Jesus died to bear retribution and justice and judgment for our sin, for our choosing sin in our own way over God. Jesus took all that on. He died on the cross and said, it's finished. The price has been paid. God died so that we don't have to earn salvation for ourselves. And a lot of times we can trick ourselves into saying, okay, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for salvation. But then we turn around and think that then it's us who matures ourselves, that we bear the burden of maturity and sanctification. And we have a responsibility to walk in obedience. But it's not us that can change our hearts if you've ever like, taught in the kids' class or you have kids or you've, you've taught in school, most of the, the, the like, disciplinary um, action is going to be behavior management because we cannot change their hearts. We cannot make them want to obey. We can only make them obey. The same goes for us. We cannot make ourselves want to obey. And so what do we do? This invitation of repentance, of belief and trust in Christ is an invitation to turn towards him. Look at what he says to the disciples. When he calls them, he says, follow me. He's already given them the declaration of repent and believe. And then he says, follow me. I'm bringing you in. 
you're free to give up your trying and your striving to earn your salvation, but also be in charge of your own maturity, to just pray better, to just be a better Christian, to just obey already. That's not on you ultimately. That's a walk. That's, that's something that, that Jesus does with you. And there was this um, conversation I had uh, with my brother-in-law earlier this week, and we were talking about this idea of obedience. And really, a lot of times when we pursue obedience, it's because we want what's on the other side. We want freedom. We want peace. We want comfort and security. We want those things. And so we're really just working for the outcome. But let's look at at verse 17. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become. There's an emphasis that Jesus puts on his call to his disciples. And, And this isn't just a call to Peter and Andrew and James and John. This is a call to us. His call to us is follow me, spend time with me. There's almost like a, so the, the language he uses here is this rabbi, disciple, student, teacher language that's follow in my footsteps, watch what I do, imitate me. And a lot of times we, we stop at just saying, I'm gonna put God at the center of my life and then go do whatever I want. God's still at the center of my life. I still wear the, the not of this world stuff. I still listen to Air One. And we just leave it at that. Jesus is calling us into a personal relationship with him, this relationship that is dependent on presence with him. That repenting and believing opens up this freedom to now be with Jesus and follow in his way. What Jesus is is calling his disciples, what he's calling us to do, when he's saying, follow me, he's saying, don't just go about your life however you see fit. Let me show you what true humanity looks like. Uh, Tim Mackey, he's one of the founders of the Bible Project. He, he calls Jesus the epitome of human flourishing. Now, we cannot perfectly repeat everything he did. And that's not what Jesus is saying that we should be doing. Because the call to follow him pre, uh, comes after the call to repent and believe. And so we actually live in this cycle. We don't just repent and believe to get into the kingdom. That's how we live in the kingdom. Repentance and faith is a constant for the Christian. You will fall short of imitating Christ. If you're afraid of that happening, fear no more. You will. But the invitation continues. The invitation to turn to him continues. The offer of freedom in Christ continues. Um, have you ever been curious about why Jesus uses um, this language? He says, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. I, for the longest time, thought there was just a cheesy dad joke. It was like, okay, that's God's like, I'm gonna stick some humor in there. Um, that's a joke that Brian or I would make, become fishers of men. There's actually a, a deeper, richer meaning. Um, remember, in the call to worship when I said, for Psalm 102, we have to look at that through the lenses 
of David's audience and of David. Well, when we're, when we're talking about who Jesus is talking to, we have to look at um, Mark's audience. We have to look at Jesus's audience. He's talking to Jewish middle-class men who knew their Bibles. They knew uh, the Torah. They knew the prophets. They may not have had the whole thing memorized because they weren't the ones that, that got straight A's and made it into the religious elite. These were guys that went into a trade. But they knew that when Jesus called them, when he said, I will make you become fishers of men, he's referring to an ancient promise. And so I want to show you, let's keep our finger in Mark 1, because we're going to come right back to it, and go to Jeremiah 16. I'm going to have to flip there. I've had so many bookmarks this morning. Jeremiah 16. So Psalms is right about in the middle, and then you go to the right a little bit, you'll hit Isaiah. Jeremiah is right after Isaiah. Jeremiah 16. And the, the passage is in this, um, we're going to be reading uh, verses 15, and then we're going to skip ahead to 21. That's just too much to cover. But what's the, do y'all see the subtitle? Right above verse 14. If you have a subtitle, uh, tell me what yours says. Hope despite the disaster. Hope despite the disaster. Mine says, the Lord will restore Israel. Does anybody have anything different? Hope despite the disaster, the Lord will restore Israel. That's there to help us get in the right mind frame of the promise that God's making in Jeremiah 16. So we're talking about, in context, we're talking about the disaster of turning from God, of putting ourselves in the center, of putting ourselves on God's throne. What happens? Sin and death. Sin always leads to death. So we're talking about uh, the passages before that is <laughs> famine, sword, and death. Real bleak. And so that when we turn towards God, here's what Jeremiah, the Holy Spirit through Jeremiah has to say. But as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, this is out of exile, away from his presence. For I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. He's, re he's restoring presence. So God is saying, I will bring them back to me. And then look ahead to verse 21. Wait, did I mess that up? Oh yeah, it's verse 16. I'm sorry. <laughs> he's bringing them back into the presence. That's the goal, Right? The goal is to get the, the people of God back into the, the place of God, to be with God, and look at how he's going to do it. Verse 16, I'm sorry. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. God's plan is to bring us back into his presence, and who does he send for? Fishers. Verse 21, therefore, behold, I will make them know this once. I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. So when Jesus, go back to Mark. We're done in Jeremiah. Go back to Mark. When Jesus says, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men, he's tapping into this 
basic knowledge that these men have of these Old Testament prophets where God promised, I'm gonna bring you back into my presence. I'm gonna give you the land that I promised you because you have a hope for eternity. Hope amidst the destruction. And Jesus says, I'm gonna make you part of that promise. And those men drop everything immediately because they're fishermen called to be students. Now, I do want to point out that when Jesus calls them into relationship with him to say, come follow me, imitate me, and I'll make you become fishers of men, he's not demolishing their vocations. He's actually bringing dignity to their vocations to say even fishermen are part of God's plan. These are men that spent hours throughout the day working on the weekends wondering, should I break Sabbath to go catch fish because my kids need food this month? And they stink. They smell like fish. And Jesus calls these fishermen, these hard laborers, they're middle class, obscure to society. And he calls them. They knew exactly what was happening. And this is the same thing that God is doing through his church now. He's calling the ordinary Christian. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about like God comes into our ordinary and obscure and unimpressive lives to call us into his own kingdom. And so he brings dignity to who we are. He brings dignity to our work. He does three things to tell his disciples, he, in one sentence, he says three things to tell them that they're part of an ancient promise. And he says these same things to you. If you are a Christian, Jesus is saying these three things to you when he calls you, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. I have got a plan for you to be a part of this ancient promise to spread my kingdom throughout the world. He says these three things. He brings dignity to our vocations. The work that you do Monday through Friday has meaning. If you are a Christian, the work that you do Monday through Friday has meaning. Whether you stay at home and you work hard at home, keeping the house in order and, and parenting your kids, that is a hard job that has dignity because of what Jesus says to, the, to us and to these men. Or you're a salesman. Or you're a weather person. Your work has dignity and meaning because, this is the second thing, he centers the purpose of our work on him. So God's plan to turn all of his people back to himself was to send his son Jesus to die on the cross to bear the punishment for our sin, right? That's the gospel that we defined. And he calls these men in their vocations to follow him and be a part of that promise to turn the whole world back into him. Guess what your role in the church, the church um, sent out, this is the church gathered this morning, the church sent out, guess what your role is? Turn the hearts of men back to the God, their father. Your work has dignity because the purpose of your work is now that you would live a transformed life among the world that they would see that you're, you're not the same person you used to be. There's something different about you. What happened? 
we had an incredible conversation on Wednesday at our table about, well, how do I know when it's the right time to preach the gospel with my words or to just simply live the gospel? And it's like, man, neither one is more obedient. As Christians, we're always living the gospel, right? We're always transformed by the gospel. But Scripture says, be prepared because you might, you might need to give a defense for that thing that changed your life. You might need to give a defense for why you follow Jesus. Then you get to preach. When you have to explain yourself why you didn't take a shortcut. Your work has dignity because it's centered on Christ. Now, this is the freedom our work doesn't have to be about us. It doesn't have to be about our bank accounts. It doesn't have to be about our legacy or our future or our kids' future. Those are good things, not ultimate things. The third thing that Jesus says is that he promises he will do the work. He says, I will make you become. So when we feel shame because we missed an opportunity to preach the gospel, it's okay. We don't, that doesn't distance us from God. It doesn't draw that separation even more boldly. We have the opportunity to repent and trust in Jesus. When we feel shame or guilt for maybe handling our business not with our Christian morals, or maybe we just really struggled with anger and we couldn't keep control of ourselves, and we feel guilt and shame for that, what do we do? We turn to Jesus. We follow him and let him make us become who we truly are. Now, I have a question for you. If Jesus is really central, if the Holy Spirit is really in us as Christians, and if God the Father is truly sovereign, what is our role? To try harder, to do better, to make life happen? To be the best version of ourselves? No. Our role is to be in his presence, to pray, to follow in his way, and to let him make us become who we are. Now, that leads me to us as individuals, us as the church. We are not behind. If God is truly sovereign over his church, over our souls, over our maturity, if God is truly sovereign over our work, you are not behind. You're not a failure. You're not buried under shame. You are exactly who God has you to be today. You are exactly where you need to be today. You simply get to rest in the presence of God. We're free to trust Jesus to make us become who we truly are. The freedom of repentance is the freedom to trust Jesus to make us become who we are with our careers, with our roles in our household, and just simply as a person, spiritual maturity. One of the things that I feel the most shame about is when I, I go through the week and I'm like, I just did terrible praying this week. What does that even mean? There's no measuring stick. 
But what that leads me to do, what that leads me to desire to do then is to come to God because I know him to be gentle and lowly. I know that he's already accepted me. I know that to God, I'm chosen, holy, and dearly loved because of what Jesus has bought for me. Because Jesus is in the center, because he's the one making us into our true selves, you are not behind. Um, there's a word that I've come to hate once it was pointed out to me, um, should. Should. We tell ourselves we should be doing more. We shouldn't be doing what we are doing. That's shame. If we truly trust Jesus to be in the center, if we trust the Spirit and the Father of God to be sovereign, God the Father, sovereign over our lives, should has no place in our vocabulary. Because then we're telling God what he should be doing in us rather than just simply resting in his presence and following him. Now, this isn't, this isn't freedom to be lazy. Freedom to just be laissez-faire, like, just live your life, man. You do you. That's not the call to repentance. It's a call to follow, to pray, and to obey. We don't have to feel fa- fear of failure because Jesus is making us who we truly are. You don't have to work anxiously to build up your own kingdom because your ultimate comfort and security is already given to you in Jesus. You don't have to is the opposite of should. You are free to repent from pursuing control over your own life, and you are free to trust Jesus to put him at the center of your existence. So that's for us as individuals. I just went through that whole thing And I forgot to even ask Nathaniel to put that slide up there. Will you put that slide up there, Nathaniel? I'm sorry. As individuals, we are free to trust Jesus to make us become who we are. We're free to repent from pursuing control. We're free to put Jesus in the center. And so if we're not in control, if it's not just like whatever impulse we think is to make this right decision, then what do we do? There's no doing, there's just praying. We feel like praying is not doing, right? A lot of times we, we're just, we feel like we should be on our computers hacking away at the keys and that's work. And it is. It's true that, that whatever you're doing on your computer doesn't get done when you're praying. But where do we put our faith and our hope and our trust if we refuse to pray because work has to be done. This is like, you guys are getting a, a, a direct insight into my brain as I work through the week, even on sermon. Like, no, I've got a sermon to write. I can take like five minutes to pray. And sometimes five minutes is a lot and five minutes is what you need, what your soul needs. But it's our priorities I'm always focused, first and foremost, on getting the job done rather than depending on the Spirit to work through me, trusting that the Spirit will speak to me as I write and show me his words as I read. So that's for us as individuals, for us as a church, 
Now, we're going to be really honest with ourselves. For us as a church, we are in this moment where, um, and, and some of you know this, some of you have been here for a while, some of you may not know this. Uh, so Redeemer San Angelo was first planted just as a, a fresh church plant, and the Lord called us to uh, join, combine, merge, replant, whatever you want to call it, with the Journey Bible Church. And so we took 20 some odd people and 30 or 40 some odd people from the journey, and we came together as one church. And that's our story. Um, The Lord called us to do that because he has this massive plan for us. And it stresses me out sometimes to realize that we're still in process. Jesus is making us to become one whole church. We are, but sometimes it doesn't feel that way, does it? Sometimes we still feel like there's a little bit of factions. There's still a little bit of segregation. And I want to say, that's okay. We've only been at this for nine months. We've only actually been gathering publicly, officially for, what, seven months? It's okay. But like I was saying before, we're, our pursuit is to be unified. But even when we're unified, we're still going to have trouble. And so unity, unity is like what's ahead of us. That's what God's calling us to. What does he have for us now? I'm going to say the same thing to us as a church, as I said to you as individuals, we are not behind. We're not. We, we still may feel a little bit of the hurt, a little bit of the pain, a little bit of the frustration and the anger. And some of us are just like, I don't know what he's talking about. And that's okay. We still feel what we feel and it's okay because we are in the moment that the Holy Spirit has given us. We're not behind. We're not in control. We are free to trust that God is building his church. And whatever emotions we're feeling, and this is is true of our moment as a church. This is true of you as individuals. It's just true of emotions, period. So I'm just going to say, you you are not your emotions. I'll tell you that. But you're also free to feel what you feel. Emotions are something... Um, they're, they're given to you. The Spirit uses them as an indicator. Sometimes I, I like to use the language, my emotions just kind of happen to me. We're not in control of our emotions. And usually we're putting ourselves in God's place when we try to control our emotions. So feel what you feel. It's okay if you're feeling hurt, if you're feeling angry, if you're feeling frustrated, if you're feeling like we should be farther along than we are, we should be more unified than we are right now. Feel what you feel and pray. I will let you know, um, Brian couldn't be here this morning, but I know, I know Brian real well. We've talked about this. We've prayed about this together. So this is coming from both Brian and I. We love you. We love you and we love your families. And so knowing that we're still in process of becoming the church who we are, that Jesus is in control of making us to become. It doesn't, it doesn't just come easy to us to just let that happen because we want to be farther along than we are because we love you. You mean something to us.
And you can trust that your pastors are praying weekly to let God be in control of his church. We're reminding ourselves of the book of Colossians uh, when, when through Paul, the Holy Spirit says that Jesus is the head of his church. We have to remind ourselves of that. And so I want you to know that you are free. We're all of us, whether you've been here for the last nine months, this is your first Sunday or somewhere in between. All of us are free to take Jesus out of the center or to, whoa, that's backwards, to take ourselves out of the center of our definitions of church and put Jesus in the center. Put Jesus in the center of your definitions of church. Man, I'm going to take a drink of water. Just a little comic relief this morning. I'm going to say that again. We are all free to take ourselves out of the center of our definitions of church. We're free to trust Jesus to be the head of his church. So let's put that that church slide up, Nathaniel. As a church, you are free to trust Jesus to be the head. Because we're growing towards unity and identity. That, those are the two words that, that we really felt compelled um, to walk in this year. Unity and identity. And so we can trust Jesus to be in charge of that. You are free to pray and to beg God for healing and for progress. We can, we're free to pray and ask God for healing and unity, and we're free to ask the Spirit how he plans to use us. And then, when we ask the Spirit to make us a part of unifying this church, what do we follow that up with? We listen and we obey. That's it. That is probably the most important part of prayer that I often overlook. I, I overlook listening and obeying more than I overlook asking. I'm good at asking. Let's be, let's be a church that, that doesn't stop at asking. Let's listen and let's obey. How does the Spirit plan to use us? And so we go into this time of communion this morning. For those of us that are Christians, this meal is reserved for the Christian. We take the bread and the cup. We take it together as one church. Whether we still feel our separations, whether we still feel... Um, like we're, we're still split up a little bit, that's okay. We are still one church. And as one church, we take the bread and the cup to remember that God the Father is truly sovereign, that Jesus, God the Son, is the head of his church, and that God the Spirit is in control of building us up as one church. And so the body and the blood of Jesus reminds us that we're not at the center of our individual lives, we're not at the center of our church lives, Jesus is at the center, so we're free in this moment to take our hurts and our pains and our anxieties. We're free to take those to Jesus this morning. Take the, 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 the bread and the juice and submit those things to him.